Well, we are joining with millions of believers all around the world that are celebrating Easter. And I can't imagine what this world would be like if Jesus had never risen from the dead. The darkness that would prevail, the chaos and confusion, there's already enough of it. But Jesus sure shines the light in the darkness. And I'm so glad you've come to worship with us. If you're a guest here today, we are especially grateful for you being with us. When you came and you received a bulletin, you can welcome the guests. Some of you are with family, some with friends, but the bulletin will share with you information that's coming up in the church uh, life. For one is right after this service, there'll be a, a welcome reception for all of our guests right in front of the fireplace. We have cookies, coffee, water. We just love to meet you and your family, so stop by just to say hello before you leave today. Next Sunday, we're having a special portion of our service dedicated to baptisms. If you want to do what that family has done. I remember I was sprinkled as a baby, but there came a place in my life where I actually surrendered my life to Jesus and went public by being baptized. Maybe some of you are in that place of your life. You're ready just to go all in for Jesus. Uh, we're going to have a special time next week and you can be baptized too. And if you'd like more information about that, you can stop by our Welcome Center or Connections Connor. We have a handout regarding that. It has some scriptures on it. You might look up in preparation for next weekend, but it's going to be very special. Also, a month from now, we're having a special seminar at the church called Marriage Night. It's a uh, simulcast conference that's being held at churches all over the nation, and we are one of the host sites. Uh, we want to make your marriage better. We really believe that when when a couple brings Christ in their, into their marriage, it affects the whole household. And so it's so critical to learn to follow Jesus in a marriage, which can be very challenging at times. And so there'll be uh, two couples sharing that night and also a very funny Christian comedian named Michael Jr. So there's information in your bulletin about how you can register for that. Well, if you've come today and this is kind of like your normal routine, you are what I would call a diehard Christian. You'll be here whether it's Easter or not. So, uh, so uh, every Sunday is kind of a celebration of the resurrection for you. And for others of you, uh, maybe you don't go as frequently, but, but you love Jesus and you love to worship Jesus. And then there's a, a group of you here that I would just say you're, you're kind of on the fringe and you're looking on the outside in because you have questions and you have concerns and you're wrestling with these large questions in life that you just haven't gotten answers to. It may be the question of why, why would a, a good God allow innocent people to suffer. I mean, even today in Sri Lanka, there have been bombings of churches and public buildings, innocent people dying. Why? Why, God, would you allow that? For some of you, the question might have to do with origins, like where do we come from, and did we, did we come from uh, evolved creatures, or did you make us, and how did you do that, and, and all that. You're wrestling over issues with that. Maybe you got questions about the Bible, like you really struggle with believing the stories. I mean, they sound so incredible. I mean, uh, seas parting and becoming dry ground for people to pass through, uh, fish swallowing people and spitting them back up on land. I mean, the sun stopping its movement in the course of the sky. I mean, come on, really? That stuff really happens? A man rises from the dead? I have a hard time getting my head wrapped around that. In fact, many people have come to the conclusion that in order to be a Christian, you've got to stop thinking. There's a common atheist, a very popular atheist today. His name's Richard Dawkins. He says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate the evidence. Uh, I want to say that's not true, that, that Jesus invites you to examine the evidence. In fact, you can examine the evidence about the resurrection, the historical evidence, and come up with your own explanation. There are many who are atheists who've studied the resurrection and become believers because of that. God doesn't say avoid the evidence. He says look at the evidence. But I would confess this that you won't get answers to some of your deepest questions on this side of eternity. I, I don't know the answers. I don't have nice, tidy boxes to put everything in. But there is one question that you really need to answer. And if you answer this question correctly, 
It'll affect everything about your life, not only in this life, but the life to come. And if you get it wrong, it will also affect your life here on earth and for eternity. And that question is this, who is Jesus? That's the question we all have to answer. And here's the good news. You can answer that even today. Because the Bible was written to bring us to the point of looking at the evidence of who Jesus is, that we would put our trust in him as the king of our lives. See, when Jesus came, he announced that the kingdom of God had arrived, that he in himself was the king, and that wherever the king was, that's where the kingdom was spreading. When people surrendered their lives to this king, the kingdom of God was growing. In fact, uh, Jesus in his Lord's Prayer said this, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom comes wherever God's will is being done. And so when, when our hearts are aligned with God's will, God's kingdom comes into our lives. You know, in our family room is a little plastic device called a remote control. It is a very powerful advice or device. I can push a button and the TV goes on. I can, I can push other buttons and channels pop up or a menu and I can scroll through the shows that I want to see. I can look at what's coming in the future. If I see a nauseating commercial, I can jump from a progressive ad to another show on another station. You know, I'm tired of seeing Flow or The Gecko, and so I want to jump to another station. I do that real quickly with the push of a button. I love this thing. I don't know how generations lived without this. Such power in my hand until my wife enters the room and she wants the remote control. And sometimes it can be a difficult thing where we struggle. Who gets to have the remote in their hands? Because as much as we enjoy certain shows together, there are times that we have different preferences. I like sports, and I like news shows and business shows. I want to see the, the latest that's happening in the world. And, and she likes veterinarian shows and fixer-upper shows and little people shows. And uh, she likes lost treasures that are buried uh, at, on Oak Island. So... So she likes different shows that I like, and sometimes this is an issue of who's going to have control today? And I just want to tell you, that is the paramount question of our lives. Who gets to have control of my life? Someone is in control. It's you, an evil power, or Jesus Christ. And you get to choose who gets to have control over your life. And I just want to tell you, It makes logical sense to give control over to Jesus because he knows the past, he knows the future, he's all-powerful, all-loving. Why would you not want to surrender to him as king? I don't understand why people, and many people who come to church year after year, have never given their lives to this one called Jesus who rose from the dead. And I could try to present a real good argument to why logically it makes sense through the evidence of Scripture to put your faith in Jesus Christ. But I want to try a different approach, approach because I don't believe the biggest hurdle in our lives is intellectual. It's, it's heart. It's not in the head, it's in the heart. It's that surrender of the will. I've read stories of many atheists who've become Christians, and they said it wasn't a convincing argument that made me give my life to Christ. It was a crisis within my heart when I finally surrendered to him that things began to change. And so I want you to get to know Jesus, maybe in a way that you've not considered him before, just through the stories that are in the Gospels. You want to really get to know Jesus, read the stories in the Gospels, and really think about them and, and what went on in these stories. It's pretty amazing who Jesus is. For example, there was a wedding in a city called Cana. 
This young couple had looked forward to their wedding day. Weddings in Jewish culture were big deals. Uh, they would plan for months because this was not just a, a day of committing their vows to each other. This was a day of, of celebrating. Celebrating with their grandparents, with their parents, with their in-laws, with their outlaws, with the aunts, with the uncles, with the cousins, with everybody, all their friends. They would all be gathered, not only for the ceremony, but for the feast that would follow several days after. And so the groom had one primary responsibility, make sure there's enough food and drink. And so at this particular wedding, the party started, but then the servers realized that we're running out of wine. What are we going to do? And this groom is going to become a great party killer with his miscalculation. I mean, to run out of wine would be a horrible thing. It would be disgraceful on the occasion. It would be the talk of the town. And yet there's a mother at the party with her son. It's Mary, and she's there with Jesus. He had yet to perform any miracles yet. This was where he performed his very first miracle. I think it's a very beautiful miracle. She turns to her son and says, son, do something. <laughs> I mean, she knows in her head when, when she was told she'd become pregnant with Jesus, he will come to save these people from their sins. And she says, that dude up there, he needs to, he, he needs to be saved from the disgrace that's about to come. So Jesus pulls some servers together and says, you see those big water pitchers over there? The ones they use for ceremonial cleansing, fill them with water. Now, these things were, were 20 to 30 gallons apiece. There's like a half dozen of them, and so they're filling these big pots with water. And then he says, now dip into some of that, put it in a cup, and take it to the uh, master of the feast. This is kind of like the, the master of ceremonies. He's kind of in charge of how things flow. And somewhere between the pouring of the water into the, into the pit pots to the dipping to the transfer to the master of the feast, that water miraculously turns into wine. And not just any wine, very good wine. The, the master of the feast drinks it and goes, oh, my goodness. He goes up to the groom and says, you outdid yourself on this one. See, most people do it this way. They'll bring the good stuff out first, and then after people have drunk for a while, they'll bring out the bad stuff, the cheap stuff, but not you. No, you save the best till last. You have kept the good wine until now. Well, that groom doesn't know what happened, but he's feeling pretty good about himself. I'm sure the rest of the ceremony, for days to come, people are congratulating him, thanking him for such a wonderful time. And over, over off to the side is this mother who, I imagine, just winks at her son and says, nice job. I mean, Jesus, who came to deal with huge issues on, on this occasion, his very first miracle, saves a groom who miscalculated from public disgrace. Now, I could follow a king like that, couldn't you? This one woman, she was kneeling in the dirt. She's encircled by a group of religious leaders, or the Pharisees, the moral police of Jesus' day. They'd caught her in the act of adultery. And this woman had been, been seen with another man that's not her husband. And so now here she was being shamed publicly in a public area. But here is the promiscuous one, right next to the promised one, the purest one, Jesus Christ. Because it's not only her that's on trial, but really it's Jesus on trial. She'd been the setup. If they really were trying to catch someone in the act of adultery, there'd be a woman and a man. The man's gone. They let him get away. They want the woman. Because really what they want is Jesus. And they're setting him up to be trapped. A man says, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the heads all nod around the circle. Because they want to test Jesus 
What does he love more? People like this woman or the law of Moses? Really, does he love God or does he love people? What's it going to be? Thousand eyes are on this woman staring judgment upon her. And even people that are walking in the public area must be looking over the shoulders of those religious leaders to see that woman kneeling in the dirt, wondering what had taken place. And she's embarrassed. She's humiliated. I'm sure she's pulling her thin, thin garment over herself to cover any bare flesh because she's so embarrassed for what she'd done. And we don't know her motives. Very likely, this happens in many poor countries, where a woman goes into prostitution or, or commits adultery to raise money just to provide for her family. This wasn't what she desired, but now she's shamed. And she knows that those men have a right to throw the rocks they're holding in her hands because that's what the law of Moses said. In fact, the, the leader of that circle group says, the law of Moses commands that a woman who does this should be stoned to death. So what do you say we should do? She tenses her body up, waiting for the rocks to start coming. Meanwhile, tears are streaming down her cheeks into the dirt before her. And then she glances over, and Jesus bends over. And in the dirt, takes his finger and writes something in the dust. Everyone gets quiet. Nobody speaks. So he bends down, and he writes a little bit more. And then the oldest in the circle drop their rocks and leave. And then the younger ones follow. And all that's left in that group is Jesus next to the woman. Jesus had said, let him who is out without sin cast the first stone at her. And the only one worthy to cast the stone is standing right next to her. What's he going to do? What is he going to say? Jesus says, where are the accusers? Is there no one to judge you guilty? And she says, no, there's no one, sir. She expects to get a lecture, but instead she receives a pardon. He says, then I don't judge you guilty either, but go and sin no more. I love this Jesus who looks at people who are rightfully condemned and says, I still love you. I still have grace for you. I could love a king like that, couldn't you? This man, uh, the worst day of his life was when he cut himself and didn't realize it because his finger had gone numb. He had leprosy. He had to go tell the priest who said, you know the routine. So he went home and he said goodbye to his wife and his family, and he left. This man who had leprosy realized it was a scourge, possibly even from God. Leprosy was a, uh, just a, an awful disease in Jesus' day. It was kind of like AIDS was about 30 years ago, something people really didn't understand. They thought they could get just by being around those people. And so it would make the skin turn white. It would become scaly. There would be sores that would ooze. But what was worse is the, the leprosy would actually penetrate the skin down to the nerve endings and kill them to where you couldn't feel pleasure or pain. What would happen was if you cut yourself, that cut would get infected, and you didn't even know it until it was too late, and you'd have to have your fingers or toes amputated. And so these lepers were driven down the outskirts of town where no one would have to see them. Your know, parents wouldn't have to shield their kids' eyes from them. The family would, would only have to visit them or drop off groceries if they wanted to, but you didn't want to be around them. Even priests would not go to see the lepers. They didn't talk to anybody except one another. They formed a little colony with each other. And I imagine it had to be such a lonely thing for those that suffered from this disease. This man who probably was a good father, good husband, faithful employee, 
all of a sudden lost all of that. He was only known by one word, unclean, unwelcome, unworthy. And I can't imagine the the prayers that a leper would give to God. God, why me? What did I do to deserve this? And no answer. See, the greatest pain of leprosy wasn't the physical pain because leprosy didn't hurt you physically. It actually took away pain. The greatest pain of leprosy was this. It was emotional pain. Have you ever suffered emotional pain? I mean, most of us are willing to tolerate physical pain much more than emotional pain. So you can tough it out when it's physical, but but when it's emotional, you don't know where to go. You turn to alcohol, you turn to drugs, you turn to suicide because you want to find an escape and you can't find it. And I imagine that's what these lepers dealt with. The incredible emotional pain, the loneliness, the shame, the disgrace of of having this illness. And they would wrap their their hands and their feet with bandages so, so they couldn't be seen by others and so they'd protect themselves from getting cut even more. I mean, so difficult to deal with. That's why it was so shocking the day that this crowd passed by. And as people shouted unclean and the crowd scattered, one man didn't leave and it was Jesus. He stood looking at this leper. And the man locked eyes with Jesus. And he decided to take a step toward Jesus. And Jesus didn't run. Jesus didn't leave. In fact, while his eyes were filled with curiosity, Jesus' eyes were filled with compassion. And so he decided to take a risk. He knew Jesus was a healer. So he said, Lord, heal me if you will. If you will. Then he waited. Jesus didn't answer right away. In fact, Jesus did something that I think was so beautiful. That's why you got to get to know this Jesus. The Bible says that in Jesus then stretched out his hand and touched him. Can you imagine not having been touched by another human for years? Last time he touched someone was probably when he said goodbye to his wife and kids. And in this day, Jesus says, I'm not afraid of you. I see you. I, I know what you're going through. And I love you. And Jesus didn't say, so I'm going to heal you. He just said this, be clean. Isn't that beautiful? Be clean. And I imagine this, this warmth from the affection of Jesus to those words just shot through his body as years of pain, loneliness, rejection, of being ostracized, all that just washed away, it just melted away. And, and like that feels when you're filthy and there's a warm spring rain, he said, for the first time I feel, I'm not just healed, I'm clean. I get a new beginning. I love the fact that Jesus cleans us, don't you? I love a king like that. Couldn't you? Couldn't you love a king like that? See, Zacchaeus could. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Tax collectors were were really despised people in Jesus' day. See, they were in close connection with the Roman government. They were assigned to collect the taxes from the Jewish people. And they had the benefit of actually adding on to the tax burden. So whatever they wanted to tack on became theirs. You can imagine how wealthy these tax collectors became and also how hated. And that's why when the story is told of Zacchaeus, it says that he was a very rich man. He made a lifestyle of scamming people. But on this one occasion, when Jesus is coming through Jericho, he decides he wants to see Jesus. He wants to check him out. We don't know why. Either he's just curious or his conscience has been getting to him. But he climbs up a tree because he's a very short man. 
can't see over the crowds. He climbs up a sycamore tree. Jesus comes through town, and Jesus looks up and sees that man and says, Zacchaeus, we need to have a talk in your house today. Now, Zacchaeus eagerly comes down, and he and Jesus go away. And the crowd begins to mutter, why does he pick such a wicked man like that? Why is Jesus hanging out with the worst of sinners? It's not new. Jesus had received this criticism before. He'd been criticized over hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes and what were considered in their culture the biggest sinners of the day. In fact, there was a time where when Jesus called Matthew to follow him, Matthew was a tax collector himself, and Matthew invited Jesus to a party with his friends. All these tax collectors gathered together, and the the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, stood outside the house saying, I can't believe that Jesus is going inside there to hang out with those people. They're so bad. They're so awful. And Jesus said, hey, guys, it's the sick that need the doctor, not the well. And I've come as the great physician. And so Dr. Jesus meets with Zacchaeus. And we don't know what they said. That's where, you know, the Bible doesn't give us all the details of all these stories. You almost have to read between the lines. But he said something that was so powerful that that Zacchaeus joyfully burst out of the house and says, says, right now, here now, I will give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times what I took from them. What in the world took place in that house to cause him to want to give up what he had accumulated over all those years? Well, I don't, but Jesus has that kind of power over people. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house where the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I love the fact that Jesus seeks us out. I love the fact that he saves the lost. I, I could love a king like that, couldn't you? There's a hill in Jerusalem, and on it were stationed three crosses. On each of those crosses is a thief. Two of them had been convicted of stealing things from people. The third one is convicted of stealing the hearts of people. In fact, he so offended the Jewish leaders and the the Roman political leaders, that they believed he was worthy of crucifixion too. And so there they are, kind of tacked up on crosses like wanted posters on a telephone pole. And people who pass by would look up and see the the men on the cross and say, that's what happens to rebels. That's what happens if you misbehave. Now Jesus has a crown of thorns on his head. He has a sign over his head that says King of the Jews, and that becomes fuel for the criticisms that get thrown on him, thrown at him all day long. It starts with the soldiers saying, you know, he claims to be King of the Jews. Let him save himself. The religious leaders mock him and say, he, he claims to be the chosen one. Why don't you come down from that cross? And the other thief on the cross says, it's the same kind of thing. Jesus, save yourself. But as time passes, the other thief on the cross sees it differently. In fact, he goes through this transformation of who he thinks Jesus is while he's on the cross. He notices that that Jesus is called a king, but he, he doesn't look like a king. I mean, never did royalty look so pathetic, so beaten. Where's his army? I mean, even the disciples that he poured himself into for three years, they can't be found except for John. The only reason John's there is because he's there with Jesus' mother. And the only defense he has to all the accusations is to say things like this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What kind of of man is this? 
He's different. He's unusual. He's so much better than us. See, we're being crucified for, for what we've done wrong. It is, it is the rightful punishment for us. But this man, he's the best of the best. And so he decides to go out on a limb. I mean, what does he have to lose? He says, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Now think about this, the audacity to ask a question like that. He'd wasted his whole life. I, I, I don't think this guy ever went to synagogue or to church. He never read his Bible, never said prayers, never said grace over a meal, never helped a poor person out. I mean, this guy was bad. Who does he think he is asking Jesus something like this? Well, what you need to know, it's not who he thinks he is. It's who he thinks Jesus is. Because there is so much packed in his request He says, Jesus, you're on your way to a kingdom. I believe you're the king. I really do. You are a king. And I believe that this cross is not the end, but a transition into your kingdom. See, he's doing what he says in the New Testament, that if if you believe that Jesus is Lord, that's another word for king, and you believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what he's doing. He's confessing him as king. He's confessing that he believes in a resurrection. And Jesus, you will, you will not be defeated by this cross. You will enter a kingdom. And when you get there, would you, would you just remember me? Jesus says, I'll do better than that. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And it just seems so strange that a man who, who really, just before the horn sounded and the game was over, says, okay, I believe. But, but it was this. It was that... He came to truly understand who Jesus was and submitted himself to the king. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't hold our past against us. I love the fact that Jesus says, even now, if you confess me and you surrender to me, I will promise you that you too will be with me in paradise. I can love a king like that, can't you? Then the last story I'll tell you about is, is about a disciple named Peter. Peter was one of the first that Jesus chose. Peter was out fishing uh, with, his, with his cohorts, and he's not catching anything until a man comes by and says, hey, put your boat out into deeper water. Now, he thinks this guy's crazy, but does it anyway, throws the nets down, and catches so many fish, their boat begins to sink. He realizes he's in the presence of divinity. He says, get away from me. I'm, a, I'm an unclean man. And Jesus says, Peter... I want you. I want you to stop fishing for fish and come with me and go fish for men. And, and Peter left it all behind to follow Jesus. He becomes one of his band of disciples that follows Jesus, and they have these incredible experiences with Jesus. On one occasion, they're out in a boat, and the storm strikes up, and there's waves just pummeling their, their boat, and, and this figure comes walking on the water toward them. And And they're all afraid, except Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, call me to come out on the water with you. He says, come on out, Peter. Water's fine. So Peter gets out of the boat, and he puts his foot on the water, and he's standing on water. It's unbelievable. I mean, I'm sure he looks around at the disciples and goes, I can't believe this. And then he sees the waves and goes, what am I doing out on the water? And begins to sink at that moment, and Jesus rescues him. I mean, Peter, what I love about Peter is, He's often the first to step out in courage. And he's often the first to speak and sometimes very foolish things. That's why Peter's not usually the first to think through what he's about to do or say. 
There's a time when Jesus asked his disciples, who, who do people out there say that I am? And they said, well, some think that you are John the Baptist raised from the dead. And there are others who think that you're one of the prophets like the prophet Elijah. And Jesus says, okay, how about you guys? You've been with me for a while. Who do you say that I am? And in a moment of brilliance that didn't come from Peter but came from God as he revealed it to him, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, bingo, you got it. You nailed it. That's who I am. And so Peter, you just must have felt really good. You know, I got it right. I listened to God. But you know what? Just a few days later, they, Jesus says, I'm going to be going into Jerusalem. I'll be betrayed. I'll be arrested. I'll be crucified. And three days later, I'll rise from the dead. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Jesus, let me teach you something right here. That ain't going to happen. And Jesus says, Peter, you are listening to the voice of Satan, not the voice of God. I mean, how does he go from hearing the voice of God one day, a few days later, he's hearing the voice of Satan? That's because Peter is going through the struggle that many of us go through of listening to the voice of the Lord and trusting him. And so Jesus brings him up on a mountain with two other disciples, James and John, this inner circle of disciples, and says, I'm going to show you who I am. And the Bible says that on that mountain, he was transfigured. They saw him. He was gleaming. He was like an angel. They saw him in all his glory. And then they heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son. Listen to what he says. And and Peter treasured that experience. But then again, just a few days later, Jesus is arrested. He's brought to trial. And people look to Peter and says, hey, you're one of his followers, aren't you? He goes, no, not me. Hey, you were hanging around this Galilean, right? No, no, never, never saw the guy before in my life. I said, weren't you, weren't you with Jesus when we saw you the other day? He says, no, no, that wasn't me. And three times Peter denies Jesus. And then Jesus is crucified and put in the tomb. And that would have been an awful end to the story. The disciples go out, return to their old jobs. This, this ride with Jesus came to an end. He didn't become the king we thought he was going to be. But that day, they're out fishing on the lake, and they're not catching anything all night long. So the next morning, there's a man that appears on the shore, and he hollers out, hey, guys, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Who's this guy? What do we have to lose? Let's try it anyway. They throw the nets over the boat, and when they start to pull it in, it is so full of fish, they can't lift it out of the water. And John realizes, oh, my goodness, I remember three years ago when something like this happened. Peter, that's the Lord. And Peter looks in and he wraps this this robe around him, jumps in the shallow water. It says he runs 100 yards through the water as fast as he can to get to Jesus. And the rest of them bring the boat in. They finally pull the the fish uh, on the net into their boat. Jesus has a fire already going with bread on there and a few fish. They throw some more on there and they have an unforgettable breakfast together. And then Jesus says, Peter, I need to have a talk with you. He says, what do you want, Jesus? He says, um, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says, oh, Lord, you know. You know I love you. He goes, feed my lambs. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He goes, you know I love you. He goes, take care of my sheep. Third time, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says, Lord, Lord. Keep telling you again and again, I love you. And Jesus says, then 
feed my sheep. And you may wonder, why does Jesus keep asking him the same question again and again? But think about this. With his lips, three times, Peter denied Jesus. And he's given him the opportunity right now to make it good. Three times, you confessed your love for me. Peter, I know you love me. Now I'm going to send you out to be one of the great apostles. And you read through the book of Acts, the role that Peter played. I love the fact that Jesus doesn't hold our failures against us. Doesn't hold against us the, the times where we've denied him or betrayed him, but gives us a chance to, to turn it around. Gives us that second chance. I love a king like that, don't you? I mean, I don't understand why anybody can look at Jesus and read stories like this and say, ah, I, I don't know if I want him to be my Lord. I don't know if I could give my life to him. You are crazy. You're crazy. He is the most loving, the most gentle, the most patient, the most kind, wonderful king you could ever serve under. It says in the the book of John toward the end that, that these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These stories are written to convince you he's worth entrusting your life to. A couple nights ago, my wife and I and some friends went to see the movie Breakthrough. And it's a story of a 15-year-old boy who falls through Lake St. Louis, frozen lake, and he goes under the water for 15 minutes. He goes without breathing for 45 minutes. And his mother is, is calling out to God for his life. There's a point in the movie, I want to tell you all the details of the movie because you ought to see it for yourself, but there's a point in the movie where, where she doesn't know what's going to happen to him. She doesn't know whether this boy's going to survive, whether he's going to be uh, brain impaired because he's gone so long without oxygen. But she, she cries out to God, and she finally reaches a place where she says, God, I'm a broken woman, and I can't fix this, and I can't control this. It's out of my hands. But I release it to you because I trust you, and I want your will to be done in this situation. And that's the, the issue you and I all face. We're broken. We've messed up. We've got all kinds of hurts, all kinds of hang-ups, all kinds of of sins, all kinds of pride issues, all kinds of doubts and fears. And Jesus says, why don't you just give it all to me? Why Why don't you turn it over? Let me have control. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means you've made Jesus the king of your life. Have you ever done that? I'm not saying, do you believe there was a Jesus? I'm saying, have you surrendered to him? That's the critical issue. And I'm going to ask you to stand because I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. So go ahead and stand. For some of you, you've done this before. And what we're saying today just resonates with you, but maybe you recall moments where you've strayed from that and you've not honored him as your king. I want to give you an opportunity to reaffirm your commitment to him. For some of you, though, this will be the very first time to say, Jesus, I'm going I'm to give it all to you. I'm going to give control over to you because I'm done trying to be in charge of my life. There's only room for one person on the throne. From now on, it's going to be you. And for those of you who may not be ready to do that, would you do this? If you truly are pursuing Jesus, would you just say your own prayer, something like, Lord, I'm really curious. I'm really interested. I want to know you more. I'm not ready to commit yet, but I want to know more. And I believe that if that's your desire, he will reveal more to you. But for those of you who today, this Easter day of 2019, will be the day of surrender for you, join with those who've already made that commitment and pray this prayer out loud. I'm going to ask if you just close your eyes. 
And maybe you even want to hold your hands out to signify what you're releasing to the Lord. You know what's in your heart, what you need to give over. And pray aloud with me. Lord Jesus, I am broken. And I can't fix myself. And I can't fix my life. But you can. I know that you love me. I know you died on the cross for my sins. And I know you rose victorious from the grave. So right now, I surrender. All that I am and all that I've done and all that I have to you. I give you my pain and sorrow. I give you my doubts and fears. I give you my pride and stubbornness. And I give you my sin and shame. Take them all and fill me with your presence. Come and live inside of me. Be the king of my life. Reign over me. Guide me. Strengthen me. Comfort me. Love me. Be my one and only king. You are there to rule over me. And I love it. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen.